Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 355, The Hearts of Our People. Before I start though, I am recording this on the 7th of October, which is but three weeks from the end of the inaugural History of England podcast tour. Just very briefly, I want to thank everyone who came. The tour had been conceived four years ago, cancelled twice and I was in a thoroughgoing panic about it. Despite the chaos that ensued from Queen Elizabeth's death, the whole thing was a complete joy and a hoot. I had the best time, and I think everyone else enjoyed it too. I hope so anyway. Thanks to everyone for coming to spend a week with me. Thanks for being so patient and such good company, and it means I'm definitely going to have to do this again next year, and will worry constantly it could never be as much fun as the first time, because you set such a high standard. Now then, it is important to take note of S.R. Gardiner's view that the civil wars cannot be understood outside the context of all three kingdoms. So, we'd better keep the Scots and the Irish in mind, albeit this being a history of England. And after all, there are many voices who claim the English Revolution could not have happened at all without the Scottish one. So, my friends, let us spend ten minutes or so north of the border and party with the Scots. As I believe we have mentioned, during James's reign, there was considerable suspicion between English and the Scots. The English thought the Scots were taking their new king away from them and being rewarded with undue, lavish patronage. The Scots, meanwhile, resented and disliked the formality of the English court and thought they did things much better back home. They resented the superior attitude of the English towards them and worried about becoming a province of England. So... As a result, both kicked against James's plan for a new Great Britain. 
Still, James had done much to bring the aristocracy of both kingdoms together and begin to build a sense of unity between them, or if not unity, exactly joint interest, shall we say. Under Charles, the Scots no longer had a king who had ruled in Scotland, who knew intimately many of the noble families. Although Charles had been born in Scotland, he'd been raised in England, and it would take him until 1633 to actually go back to his fatherland. So his relationships and knowledge were dependent on what he could achieve in Westminster. Charles was aware to a degree of the worries of his Scottish subjects, and to make them feel better, he declared publicly that he was born a Scot and would bear for Scotland the same affection as his father. This didn't really cut the mustard as far as the Scots were concerned. James had proudly announced that he ruled Scotland with a pen, and to a degree that was true, but he had the advantage of knowing still many of the chief ministers on the Scottish Privy Council in Edinburgh. He'd been served by them for many years and served by very able ministers. Those Privy Councillors had become used to managing upwards, as it were. So the Earl of Mar remarked Charles I on his accession that a hundred times your worthy father has sent down directions which we have stayed, and he has given thanks for it when we have informed him of the truth. Now, the Scots wanted a principal minister based in Scotland to try and compensate for the loss of influence they'd had with a resident king. But Charles was having none of that, and instead he worked through the Scottish Privy Council in Edinburgh, handing down orders after taking advice from Scots who had moved to live at his court in Westminster or those who did make the long and expensive journey to court in London as required. It should be clear then that Charles did not govern Scotland as an English king with English councillors. He kept Scottish affairs rigorously separate from his English councillors and state institutions. That might sound like a good thing for Scottish independence, and I guess it is. But Charles was very secretive about what he was doing, jealous about keeping Scotland as his own affair and nobody else's. So when the brown stuff did hit the spinny thing, it came as a bit of a shock to the English Privy Council about what had been going on, or at least to those who did not have their own sources of information. It meant they were not quite as useful as they might have been. Meanwhile, Charles treated his Scottish Privy Councillors in Edinburgh like mushrooms, an old gag you might know, which in sanitised form means that he kept them in the dark and fed them with manure. He sent them orders and expected them to execute said orders. Needless to say, this one-way traffic was not what his nobles meant when they spoke of consultation. Nor, of course, is it an impressive management technique. Unsurprisingly, his councillors found their jobs meaningless and demotivating. As far as they could see, their king was not interested in having them play a role in the governing of the kingdom. And so many of them simply stayed away from the Privy Council and managed their regions with the long tradition of heritable jurisdictions and didn't bother with national affairs too much. One consequence of this was that in a crisis, Charles would find himself opposed by many of the people who should naturally have been on his side. Just as bad, it meant that many nobles Charles could well have drawn to his side were repelled. One example would be James Graham, the Earl of Montrose, about whom you will hear a lot more, who seems to have visited Charles in 1636. But he'd been treated when he arrived with little respect, 
and he left the place steaming and seriously miffed. But there was more than that. The point is that the Scots had many concerns about the link with England, this change in their status and situation, and those needed addressing and discussing. So, first off, there was the thing about money. Although it had seemed possible when James went south, with their own man on the throne, English resources could be used to further Scottish interests. Hurrah! Well, the English Parliament and the Council had nixed that idea pretty quickly. The danger now was that the opposite would prove true. So Charles straightaway asked the Convention of Estates in Scotland, a sort of mini Scottish Parliament, to agree a tax, which they did, but they did so on the basis that the money would not be spent getting involved in the Thirty Years' War, since they had no control over how such money would be spent. And that worried them. Not that the English had much more say about how English money was spent by their king, to be fair, given Charles's high view of the royal prerogative. Charles also began to show a distressing lack of nuance in his understanding of Scottish affairs. There are two main things to mention. James had left his darling son a little time bomb or two, and one of them concerned religion, as per always. The Scottish Reformation had been much more of a bottom-up thing, led, well, by the Lairdly and Magnate classes at least, rather than handed down by the monarch. One aspect of this had been the radical Presbyterian movement of John Knox and Andrew Melville, and their attempt to separate church and monarch. There was a kingdom of God and a kingdom of the king. So much so that by 1600, although bishops formally remained part of the church, there were actually no Scottish bishops in place because the radical Presbyterians had managed to get rid of them all. Now the Scots were very proud of their kirk. They believed it to be the most perfect example of a fully reformed church in Europe, far superior to its southern neighbour in particular. Much and increasing national pride was tied up with the kirk and it was beginning to compete indeed with their pride in the Stuart dynasty. Through James and Charles's reigns, given the consistent tug of war over religious policy and an absentee king, it began to look increasingly to Scots, as though actually it was the Kirk, not the monarch, which was the real defender of Scottish nationhood and identity, and that was becoming a real problem for the Stuart monarchy. Anyway, during the latter part of his reign, James had successfully fought back against the radical Presbyterians and mobilised moderate Kirk opinion to reinstate the bishops. And so 15 years later, all the bishops were in place, where in 1600, none had been in their sees and on their thrones. And then in 1618, there was further controversy when James had forced an act about religion called the Five Articles of Perth through a very reluctant, unhappy and generally grumbly General Assembly and Parliament. That is a General Assembly of the Kirk, by the way, which happened every year. Many of the Act's provisions were designed to get right up the radical Presbyterian nose, things like kneeling at communion and requiring confirmation by bishops. On that, a quick anecdote from my church-going youth. There was a jolly hymn we used to sing called At the Name of Jesus, Every Knee Shall Bow. Little did I know that this was a somewhat contentious requirement. 
How could such a nice tune be wrong? Anyway, despite a certain amount of discontent with James, the peace was kept in Scotland by some jolly sensible bishops who just didn't enforce the Articles of Perth very much. And to be fair, a clever king who knew not to push it too hard. It was there on the statute books, no need to push it down people's throat. And there was a lesson there for Charles, should he cared to have learned it. A wise king goes softly, wears kid gloves and keeps the big sticky thing well hidden and only to be used in special occasions. Well, Charles didn't really take said lesson to heart on his accession. He meant well, probably, since he proclaimed his support of the Scottish Kirk and the government of the Kirk now happily established. Which is fine, but he then followed that up by calling for the strict execution of the law, you know, including those Articles of Perth, and in having a crackdown on all non-conformists. Effectively, the bishops had rather let slide those rules, as I say, in the interests of harmony. Now Charles appeared to be demanding the observation of Easter and Christmas, which the radical Presbyterians in Scotland thought to be little short of paganism, and demanding that folks kneel for communion and promoting the authority of bishops, all of which was just mighty contentious with the more radical sections of Presbyterian Scots. The funny bone had therefore been tweaked. The sleeping dog, lying in his basket, had been disturbed. In practice, Charles had other fish to fry, and so in practical terms, perhaps not too much harm was done, because they weren't really rigorously enforced, but there might be trouble ahead without love and music and romance. Because... He then committed a rather more major bloomer. This go goes by the name of the Revocation of 1625. The Revocation of 1625. Now, there was a well-accepted right for Scottish kings when they came to the throne before their majority, so if they were minors, that they were allowed to revoke the grants of land made during their minority on the principle that the minor could not have controlled many of those grants made in his name by a regent. Now, it seems like a thoroughly sensible policy, although a little harsh if you'd managed to snag a few acres at the time, but it kept the monarchy properly resourced and repaired the damage of rapacious regents. And there had been a lot of minorities in Scottish history, let me tell you. Now, Charles wasn't really a minor, he was 24, and but majority for these purposes was defined at 25, so technically he was a minor if he chose to push it, which he did, and without consulting with the faraway Privy Council in Edinburgh, he used just the advice of his London Scots. So, Charles, as a result, went for it big time and raised a storm. Because rather than focusing on relatively recent grants, which was the custom with these revocations, Charles made this revocation of 1625 relevant to all grants of land made since 1540. 15. When? the last 85 years. Now, the amount of land threatened by this was more enormous than Roldal's crocodile, and like that unfortunate reptile, threatened to sizzle up landowners like a sausage. Think of all those church land which had passed into landowners' grubby mitts over that period. In practice, again, the revocation came with some benefits and wasn't quite as bad as the headlines. Lairdly classes 
stood to profit from it with greater rights over land. They could reclaim stuff from magnates, for example. Clergy could get better stipends. But the way Charles did all this, the headlines he created, was something of a propaganda disaster. Once again, there was NAFOR consultation. He failed to get key members of his nobility behind him and on the side of his policy. The church was miffed, despite profiting mightily because it actually did wanted more from it. So the revocation caused insecurity and worry. What was this new king like? And if Charles could go all the way back to 1540 with such a thing, what could possibly then be safe? One contemporary took it very seriously indeed and said, after all the Scottish Revolution went on, said that it was the ground stone of all the mischief that followed after. And given the mischief ahead of us, that is a ground stone indeed. So, nothing major yet, but there are matters of potential conflict in Charles's northern kingdom, and he must tread carefully. Keep that in a corner of your mind, somewhere you can get at it easily. We'll come back to Scotland and indeed go to Ireland in due course, but let us return now down south where the 1626 Parliament had ended in chaos, confusion and bad feeling between King and his commons. Just before Parliament was dissolved, there was a further round in the religious struggle between Calvinist and Arminian. Charles had agreed to have Richard Montague's works reviewed by convocation, which had gone down very well with the Calvinists. And for a while, it looked as though the result would be a re-establishment of the status quo and the balance restored between the Calvinist and Arminian, based on an essentially Calvinist theology and restatement of the theory of predestination. Ah, phew! Where there is discord, let me bring harmony and all that. But it was not to be, because at this point, Lord and Charles had a good, long, hard look at the convocation's decision, took control of the proclamation, and a new strategy appeared instead or at least the reappearance of an old one. Charles, in his first year, had appeared to be willing to open up debate about matters of contentious doctrine in religion, such as predestination. Now, suddenly he and Lord closed it down. Maybe because it was not going in a direction they liked, maybe because it was just too difficult and led to unresolvable argument. So, the new proclamation of June 1626 from Convocation simply stated Charles's utter dislike of those who stir up or move any new opinions differing from the sound and orthodoxical grounds of true religion established in the Church of England. So the proclamation wasn't a disaster for either side, but neither did it really re-establish the status quo because the Calvinist interpretation of predestination was under attack. But essentially, it was back to the old days of his father, James, who had squished any kind of debate about what he saw as obscure matters of contentious doctrine so that everyone could just be happy believing what they thought the text said. The very heart of diplomacy, in fact, agreements so vague they could be interpreted as you wished. So that's as well, maybe a good strategy to return to the ideas of his father. But whereas James had supported this policy with an even-handed attitude to the implementation of said strategy, all and every transgressor was duly squished, therefore. 
That would not be the way of it with Charles. He rather allowed Arminians to keep on saying as they wished, and so Montague was not squished, for example, by the proclamation. But Calvinists, on the other hand, when they warbled about predestination and other contentious subjects, were squished. So, Bishop Neal, for example, was allowed to stop a debate at Cambridge in support of the Calvinist view of predestination. The Court of High Commission in London used the proclamation they just had as an excuse to ban the writing which had criticised Montague, but notably did not actually ban Montague's writing. So that hardly seems fair. And meanwhile, Charles was far less scrupulous than his dad had been about keeping the balance even in the appointment of senior clerical posts, so notably Lord was now made Dean of the Chapel Royal, and it was whispered around that Charles intended him to become Archbishop of Canterbury when reliably Calvinist George Abbott was gone. Both the Arminian Lord and Neil were now promoted to the Privy Council. Calvinists feared they were beginning to see the emergence of the reality of Charles's religious settlement. On the face of it, an approach emphasising unity, but in practice favouring the Arminians. This space, gentle listener, is to be carefully watched. For further information will shortly be pasted here. Before we do anything pasting like that, though, let us go behind the scenes into the private chambers of the King and Queen, for there was trouble brewing there too. I have noted before that there are four parties in this marriage between Henrietta Maria and Charles, and I know you are all aware of this, and that it is not traditionally a good idea in a marriage, but really, being a king to a queen marriage-wise was a deeply odd affair, wasn't it? I mean, how on earth could you be expected to have a private, personal relationship? Absolutely escapes me. It is worth noting just FYI and BTW and OFC that in France, Richelieu saw a political and religious role for Henrietta Maria's household right from the start, she might have been a willing tool in this, but a tool, a means to an end, she was, from the very beginning. Her household was always intended to be a political centre with close connections to English Catholics and the French court, and hence it was why Richelieu had instructed Father Berroul, Henrietta's confessor, to reject Buckingham's mother when she asked to join the household. She would have been uncomfortably fifth columnist amongst all the French courtiers of the Queen. Meanwhile, the Bishop of Mantes, the Queen's almoner, had developed a healthy and vibrant hatred for Buckingham. So, it's all going on in there. The French court in Paris generally believed Buckingham was fermenting hatred between King and Queen so as not to have a rival for the King's affections. And unfortunately, the way Charles carried on rather helped reinforce this impression because it was often his good mate Buckingham who got the nasty job of a go-between, carrying those unhappy messages from king to queen and vice versa. I speak of messages curt and of messages grumpy. In fact, the Buck's biographer Lockyer claims that he was doing no such thing, that he actually wanted harmony. For example, the Buck suggested the queen join the king at the Privy Council meetings to oil the wheels. This particular invitation, by the way, Father Barul instructed her to reject, suspecting some devilish scheme going on. And then, of course, you have all that formality going on about everything which really stopped Charles and Henrietta Maria clearing the air. I mean, really, not surprising things are tricky, 
and it must have been a mare for the pair of them. They squabbled a lot as a result. Is this the sort of thing you want to hear in a podcast, by the way? Domestic arguments? Domestics? Once, for example, though, just to assume the answer's yes, the French ambassador had to be called to resolve an argument. His job in this? To settle a dispute about whether or not it was raining at the time. They had an argument in bed about who was to administer the Queen's lands. I don't know, is that traditional in your experience? It was a real downer for Charles and making him sad and miserable, and I suspect it was exactly the same for the Queen. From November 1625, he started thinking that maybe getting rid of the Queen's household might help. It would, after all, reduce the number of people in this relationship from four to three. And by August 1626, Charles had taken the momentous decision that the French must go. So, he sent for his wife to attend him. Is that the best way to start a a tricky conversation, I ask you? I mean, I don't know. But I must try sending for my wife one day and see how that goes. But I suppose 17th century king and queens are different. Let's see. Well, to be honest, the outcome here was pretty similar to the one I'd expect, because the response to said summons was a flat refusal. Henrietta Maria, in fact, pleaded a toothache. I don't think my wife would need to plead anything. So Charles therefore marched with the entire Privy Council in tow, would you believe, over to Henrietta Maria's chambers, and where he found a dance and party going on, no doubt strategically placed to give the right impression. But nothing daunted, with everyone standing, looking on, in a situation which would surely deserve the description awkward Charles publicly made his announcement. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd develop an immediate interest in the stucco work on the ceiling, or maybe start looking for cobwebs and do a spot of tidying. Charles stopped the party dead and told his beloved that he was sending her servants back to France for the good of herself and the nation. And oh, by the way, it was never raining. Well, I don't know how you'd react in this situation, but here it's a matter of historical record. And that makes me celebrate the mercy that, for most of us, our domestics don't make their way into the National Archives. I say most. Anyway, Henrietta Maria, understandably, lost it, yelling and howling and smashing the windows with her bare hands. Which is better than using her own hands, I suppose. Arf, and indeed arf. The yeomen of the guard were called to move everyone out, and there was much howling and lamenting. And then on the 7th of August, duly, a miserable and angry caravan of 30 carriages and 50 carts left London for the continent, stuffed full of French people, with no doubt many resentful French glances in the carriage marriage, and maybe the odd hand gesture to boot. Charles's parting wishes were also a matter of historical record, and consisted of The devil go with them. My grandmother would no doubt have been moved to remark what are to do, and I would suggest that it does qualify for the status of a bit of a to-do. Unsurprisingly, Henrietta Maria, still only 17 and now alone in a strange land, was reported to be most depressed. However, it is worth noting that she did not collapse under the strain. She was determined to play the proper role of Queen yet, despite the humiliation. 
and some French attenders were soon allowed back, along with a religious household which had anyway been part of the marriage contract, and this amounted to at least 40 people, so that's not nothing. And she supervised at least three court entertainments in 1626 and 1627, a very clear part of the Queen's role, already showing it a highly developed taste in the arts, which might possibly be a shared interest with Charles too. So maybe there was a future for love's young dream, but not quite yet, it seems. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Right, now then, everyone knows that the only good kind of history is the stuff where lots of people die in a hail of bullets or people get their heads chopped off and bowels removed in front of their eyes. And frankly, there's not been enough of that recently, has there? So, let's have some, and where better to find it than in the Thirty Years' War? Let me take you, ladies and gentlemen, to Lower Saxony, which is sort of a few inches south of the Jutland Peninsula on a small-scale map of Europe. Does that help? It is the 27th of August, 1626, and we are at a place called Luta, and it is wet, ladies and gentlemen all. It is wet. Christian IV of Denmark was there with about 21,000 of his closest friends and companions. He is there because not only is he King of Denmark, he is also the Duke of Holstein and therefore a member of the Holy Roman Empire. Hmm. And therefore had a stake in said Thirty Years' War. Denmark was Lutheran to boot and a pretty powerful kingdom at the time. The crown of Denmark controlling as it did not just Denmark but also Norway and parts of what is now Sweden, and therefore critically controlling access and tolls into the Baltic Sea. Something of a money spinner. Anyway, Christian IV, who is reckoned a very successful and highly regarded Danish leader, I believe, had entered the Thirty Years' War partly for the good of his co-religionists, but also, as is typical for the Thirty Years' War, for more prosaic and secular reasons. He was worried that the imperial advance, seemingly uncheckable, would see land reclaimed for the imperium from him. And when General Wallenstein arrived in force not far from the Danish king's dominions, those fears rode to a fever pitch. So, accompanied by English, Dutch and German Protestant sport, rejoicing and general flag-waving, hooray, Christian entered the war. Protestantism had found a champion. Trouble is, things had not gone too well so far. It had been a three-pronged attack plan. Now, my unscientific impression, by the way, is that every three-pronged attack plan I have ever heard of always ends in disaster, but feel free to disagree. Let us take each of these prongs one prong at a time. Prong number one. Count Mansfield had continued his brilliant career by failing completely and getting his ass kicked at Dessau. Christian of Brunswick had messed up his prong number two, and every other part of his anatomy, in fact, by, you know, dying. And prong three, Christian the fourth, had been forced, as a result, to run away through torrential rain by the advance of Imperial Catholic General Johann Tachlis Graf von Tilly a general who had pretty much so far given everyone a kicking. But 
at Luther, Christian turned, muttered presumably Luther's famous, Here I stand, I can do no other, line to himself, trusted in God and hoped his powder was dry. This would be where the fortunes of war turned back to glory for Protestantism. Hmm, except it wasn't. The fog of war was the main problem, bits of the Danish army attacking without orders, wandering up to an artillery emplacement at one stage, which was fully loaded, which led to decimation, panic and flight. Tilly counterattacked, and all was over. A few skilful cavalry counterattacks allowed Christian himself to escape, but this was a military disaster rather than a glorious turn in fortune by anyone's reckoning, losing 7,000 dead and wounded and leading to the defection of large numbers of German princes from the Protestant alliance. Only English and Dutch money could now keep the champion of Protestantism and the potential saviour of Frederick and Elizabeth Stuart of the Rhineland, of course, in the war. When the news of the Battle of Luther arrived home, the government were already in the middle of a foreign policy panic. It happens. First of all, there'd been a rumour that the Spanish were on their way to England with a flotilla of 200 boats and 40,000 men from Flanders. Turned out not to be so. But look, before you scoff, there would be a new panic a year later in 1626, which would absolutely be true when Olivares had plans drawn up to attack Ireland, capture some Scottish islands, and then, from those launch pads, go on to attack England itself. The fear of Ireland as a backdoor into England was not actually just paranoia. Paranoia, as they say, does not mean they're not out to get you. Meanwhile, relationships with France were at an all-time low. And you know, that is a pretty high bar, given 1356 and all that. The expulsion of the Queen's French household was, of course, not seen as mm, an overtly friendly act. And there's a matter of rivalry between Richelieu and Buckingham. Everyone believed antagonism between these two were causing friction and potentially war between Charles and Louis. The Italian ambassador in Savoie wrote home of deep despair in Savoie that the interests and passions of these two favourites die red the swords of the two young kings who allow themselves to be ruled by them, so that everywhere this is called the War of the Favourites. Meanwhile, there was a worrying build-up of French naval forces in Brittany, which had the English worried that Richelieu was planning to break the peace with the Huguenots and launch a fresh attack on La Rochelle. Meanwhile, the Danish ambassador in London was spitting feathers, blaming the English for its patchy delivery of subsidies to the Danish king for the defeat at Luther. So, Charles cut short his summer progress to assure the Danish ambassador that he would render his uncle every assistance, even at the risk of his own life. The trouble was, of course, that compared to Charles, old Mother Hubbard looked as rich as a hedge fund manager. This was an interesting time on the Privy Council. Charles was very close to checking out from the idea of a constitutional parliamentary monarchy completely. Not quite there yet, but he is completely hacked off with the parliamentary thing, totally wedded to the King's responsibility to consult, but in his mind that means with his Privy Council primarily, not those blasted commons. Who needs commons anyway? Interestingly, there was a report of a conversation he apparently had with the French Bishop Monde, whom he asked about the means used by the kings of France to rid themselves of Parliament. 
which is a suggestive question, I'm sure you will agree, though also it sits firmly in the hearsay and gossip category, frankly. With his Privy Council, Charles faced a body comprised of a range of views. On the more extreme side, Dorset and Lord led a faction that played up the threat in the Commons of what they saw as popularists, whom they were convinced were causing nought but trouble. And if a new Parliament was called to raise money, said popularists would see to it that they made as much mileage as possible in their view. And so Lord and Dorset stressed new councils, as they call it. New councils, a phrase we will hear again, essentially meant new ways of raising cash without consulting the people in the form of Parliament. Dorset's conversation with the Venetian ambassador also found its way into the report back home. Lord knows what history would do without Italian Renaissance diplomats. They are such a good source of a bit of high-grade quality goss. Anyway, Dorset had apparently said to the ambassadore, War must be maintained using the property of the subject, all being bound to contribute what is just. And if in the last Parliament the people had agreed to the promised contribution, they would have paid much less than the King will eventually compel them to disperse. At any rate, there's no fear of insurrection in this kingdom, as it contains no fortresses. Mm, well, fighting talk, and the Earl of Dorset's crystal ball clearly on the blink at the time. Against these firebrands, a core of the Privy Council was much more moderate, and still took the view that it was critical to work through Parliament, and Buckingham's publicly stated view also seemed to be moderate, despite the threat to him from Parliament in terms of impeachment. A decision must be made. Money was needed right now, without Parliament. And so Charles wrote to all the deputy lieutenants and JPs requesting that the subsidies that Parliament had almost granted him should be now given as a free gift. There's an idea from the good of people's hearts. Now, we have seen kings asking for free gifts before in days medieval. I think they worked up the jolly good wheeze of calling it a benevolence. Lovely word. The sort of mood, mood music was... You would like to loyally give a gift to your king, wouldn't you? Oh, by the way, before you answer, have I shown you this extremely large stick I got for Christmas? Isn't she a beauty? Anyway, go on, you were saying. Plus ça change, eh? But the answer this time, despite said stick, was tumbleweed. County after county wrote back saying they would give by parliamentary grant or not at all. The idea of a new parliament was therefore mooted once more at council and it's notable that Charles was now attending Privy Council meetings regularly and taking a direct role in running things. And when this suggestion of a new parliament came up, his response was They might pledge his word and crown, but there was to be no question of a parliament. So that seems clear enough. But things were desperate. In the summer, the king had tried to squeeze the royal milch cow that was the City of London for a loan, asked for 100,000 quid, actually managed to get 20,000 quid and a lot of whining. Though, to be fair, I don't think London charged interest for the whining. That came gratis. The Privy Council had considered debasing the coinage, but to their eternal credit, realised just what a rubbish strategy that always turned out to be. Time was pressing. They now had a plan to send 4,000 veteran troops from the English army in the United Provinces to help Christian, but money was needed to do even that. 
So, the new counsel was that the country should be jolly well told they must give the king a free loan and give it pronto. None of this Mr Nice Guy. It's national security, Gov. The last refuge of the scoundrel, of course. Now, of course, the Privy Council did not go out to the country and say, hey, we have this loan we're forcing you to make. But the move acquired the word forced from popular usage, largely because it was, in fact, forced. There were now penalties if you didn't want to make the free loan. The process was that the county commissioners all crowded into London for training. Actually, it all rather has the feeling of a sales conference for a new campaign, although presumably no one was getting to photocopy their bottoms. But they were giving training on what to say and how to say it with a prepared text. A bit like a sort of sales manual. The text had been prepared in the light of a response of the judges of the King's Bench to the King's inquiry about the legality of a forced loan. And they, unfortunately, had not been very compliant. Now, this is a bit of a turn-up for the books, because I was reading about why lawyers were so hated in Stuart, England, and the amount of corruption and double-dealing between the better sort of clients, barristers and judges, is indeed horrifying. Also, if a king didn't like a judge's judgment, they simply fired them and found one who gave judgments they did like. This obviously had an impact on the views judges felt they could hold. There is no denying it, and we will see evidence of that soon. Promise. But in this case, actually, the judges refused to endorse the king's desired loan. In November 1626, they said it would be illegal. Charles's response was that he will sweep clean all their benches. And he called the Chief Justice, Randolph Crewe, before him for a cosy fireside chat. And in a cosy fireside chat sort of way, fired Chief Justice Randolph Crewe's backside. So that was that. But the text in the proclamation kind of had to deal with that legal objection. And part of the proclamation was very interesting. Coming from the King, it said this. This course, which at this time is thus enforced upon us, by that necessity to which no ordinary course can give the law, shall not be in any wise drawn into example or made precedent for after time. We are fully prepared to call a Parliament so soon as conveniently we may, and as often as the Commonwealth and State occasions shall require it. And by our people's affection now showed unto us in this way of necessity, they shall the sooner invite us to the frequent use of Parliament, being confident in the hearts of our people. This is an interesting statement. So, like our least favourite Christmas jumper, let us unpick it a bit. The first bit stresses, oh, there's no time for a Parliament. That's why we're going down this route. And it's too important to abide by the law because it just takes too long. National security, darlings. National security. Matters of state. But look, it continues. Don't worry, puppets. It's not going to be setting a precedent. Soon it's done. Soon it's forgotten. The second part of the statement is frankly even more alarming because it rather suggests that, well, OK, parliaments will be called, but only when the king is confident of the hearts of our people, i.e., once you've demonstrated the appropriate loyalty to me, then I'll consider calling a parliament. So, not because it's a constitutional requirement, then. 
The commissioners of the forced loan were instructed not to have mass meetings. No point getting objectors together to work themselves up into a lather, divide and rule, smile and wave. Over the next 12 months, they would trawl round their sales territories, sorry, counties, talking to those with cash well out of earshot of their peers. As far as penalties were concerned for not paying the loan, well, there was an interesting struggle in the Privy Council and with the King. The hardliners in the council suggested threatening one group of 150 refusers in Gloucester with being impressed into military service by way of payment, and a letter with the royal signet was prepared for just that. Another was, sorry, just checking my notes here, oh yes, to string non-payers up from trees outside their houses pour encourager les autres. None of this happened, I am happy to say. The moderates fought back in council and won the argument. Though refusers were ordered to appear before the Privy Council for consecutive days, which was both a major expense and, of course, the chance to apply maximum pressure. And indeed, many individuals who refused to pay were indeed imprisoned or pressed into service. Now, in point of fact, the forced loan was super successful. It raised... £243,000. This has been used as evidence that England was not in fact convinced that the King had to go through Parliament to raise taxation at all, or indeed that his argument was valid, this being that in times of necessity the King could do what was required, whatever the rules, and the King got to decide what the word necessity meant. But despite this, there were in fact refusers, 15 peers and over a 100 of the major gentry, now, these refusers hit Charles hard in his heart. And it is interesting to identify aspects of his response which are becoming a bit of a theme here. So, payment of the loan became not just business and politics, forced on him and his council by necessity and extremity of circumstances. For Charles, this became a test of his subjects' loyalty to him personally. He was coming to see Parliament's failure to grant supply as spearheading a popular assault on the very foundations of his monarchy. So now he demanded evidence from his subjects of their loyalty to his will. And the forced loan became part of that. And secondly, once again, he refused to hide behind the convenient fiction that oiled the wheels of monarchy, that of council. Once again, he clearly identified this as his personal policy and refused to hide behind his privy council. Again, I'd say in many ways, very honest and super laudable, but deeply dangerous politically. In the end, try as they might, those who objected to the vandalism being visited on the principle of consent would have nobody to blame but the king, because he said it was his. However, the loan was still collected and very successfully indeed. But the political damage caused by the forced loan was probably far greater than at first it appeared. Archbishop George Abbott's feelings may well be typical, even among those who helped implement the forced loan. There was a deep distaste. To all of those who clung to the belief that government in England was based on cooperation and voluntary consent of the subjects, this was a hideous event, the forced loan but it was difficult to organise and to know what to do without extraordinary individual courage. So this is what George Abbott said later. It ran in my mind that this new device for money could not long hold out. 
that then we must return into the highway, whither it were best to retire ourselves betimes, the shortest errors being the best. But these thought I suppressed within my soul, swallowed my own spittle, and spake nothing of it to any man. The way the forced loan was collected, as I have said, made it difficult for people to organise and resist. What resistance needed was a focused leadership. But we'll hear about that next time. But very briefly, just before I leave, I have a correction to make to an anecdote I told. A patron of the podcast, one Jay by name, has pulled me up on a Wittgenstein anecdote I told. I had to tell you this correction is reasonably obscure. I said that Ludwig had stood up for medieval folk against a student mocking the very idea that anyone could believe the earth was not going round the sun. Now look, this is, as I say, a pretty esoteric discussion here, so you can scrub forward to the end and go on to your next podcast right now. But it appears my memory of this story played me false in two ways. One, this was the actual quote. Tell me, why do people always say that it was natural for men to assume that the sun went around the earth rather than that the earth was rotating? His friend said, well, obviously, because it just looks as if the sun is going round the earth. To which the philosopher replied, well, what would it have looked like if it had looked as if the earth was rotating? So I got the sense of it totally wrong. Secondly, probably not a real quote. It comes from a Stoppard play, which actually I did at A-level, called Jumpers, which I did really enjoy. But it turns out this was an obscure joke by Stoppard on Wittgenstein's character. Don't ask me to explain that because I don't know. It just confirms my view, reinforced by going to see many Stoppard plays since, that that lad is way too clever for me. For example, without studying Jumpers in depth, it is surely impossible to know why Zeno's paradox proves that St. Sebastian died of fright. Anyway, sorry for the egregious error, and thanks to Jay for putting me right. And thanks to all of you for listening, commenting, taking part. Thanks to all of you who have become members through Patreon or thehistoryofengland.co.uk, and so keep this podcast going. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 